This is Eight or and a Better. My name is Sajid Khan, and I'm joined by a guest co-host, Sarah Ruby. Hi, Sarah. How are you? Hi, Sajid. I'm great. Thanks for having me. Avi is in full trial mode right now, prepping for <laughs> a trial. And so Sarah, a fellow public defender with us here in Santa Clara County, is kind enough to join us to host our special guest and repeat Eight or and a Better guest, Ash Kalra. Ash, welcome. Well, great to be here. Thanks for having me again. Yeah, Ash, welcome. So uh, for those of you that don't know Ash, Ash is a former public defender uh, in our Santa Clara County Public Defender's Office. He served there for 11 years before becoming a, or before getting elected to the San Jose City Council. And then after uh, serving on the San Jose City Council for eight years, uh, he subsequently was elected to serve as a assemblyman for the state of California, uh, representing a district out of San Jose. Is that right, Ash? Yeah, I represent about half of San Jose. And Ash has been on the front lines of criminal justice reform and other reforms uh, in Sacramento for the past few years and is joining us on this podcast to talk specifically about a piece of legislation that he drafted and has led uh, the effort on called the California Racial Justice Act Assembly Bill 2542. Uh, which we're going to talk about, and then we're going to talk about what else has been going on in Sacramento uh, after, in the aftermath of the death of George Floyd, um, and in the aftermath of the Black Lives Matter uh, social justice movement. So, Ash, welcome. Thank you. Sarah, do you want to uh, start us off? Um, well, I, I, we have the author here of AB uh, 2542, so I wonder, Ash, would you tell us what it is and why you think it's so important? Absolutely. Uh, the Racial Justice Act is landmark legislation, uh, and it's critically important. Uh, it's always been important to push forward something like the Racial Justice Act, but all, obviously given what we see happening around the nation, around our state, millions in the street, a resurgence of a black liberation uh, uprising. I think it's more important than ever. And people are more aware than ever of what's happening in our criminal justice system. So it was the right time to bring forward the Racial Justice Act. And I'm very excited that it's on the governor's desk. And it really speaks to systemic issues in our criminal justice system. Over the last few years, we've had a number of bills that have dealt with enhancements or overly punitive aspects of our uh, penal code. And, and they've been great you know, to be able to get some of these bills through and to give more tools to judges, more discretion to judges, or mm -hmm. to outright eliminate some of the enhancements that have been used to target people of color, certainly uh, younger Black and, and Latino uh, defendants that get caught up in the system and then get overly punished uh, compared to the rest of the population. But we know that even getting rid of these enhancements and, and different manners of sentencing or increasing sentences, that there's still an underlying uh, systemic racism issue in our criminal justice system. And so that's what the Racial Justice Act seeks to address. It really is a reaction to the McCleskey case from the 1980s, which was a death penalty case in Georgia, uh, which is a case that you know, most lawyers learn in law school. Maybe a lot of them forget it, but I know that it's something that many criminal uh, defense attorneys certainly know. And it, it was a case where the defense successfully established that race played a role in their client uh, getting the death penalty. It was acknowledged by the court, by the Supreme Court, acknowledged that yes, race certainly played a role, but that's not good enough. You have to show intentional racism or intentional acts of racism that impact your case, not just the general existence of racism in the system. 
the court, I believe, was wrong in their ruling. However, they did have the wisdom to indicate that states could individually legislate their own set of rules around rooting out racism. So we do have a couple of states, North Carolina, Mississippi, that have a racial justice act just for death penalty cases. What my bill does is it has a racial justice act for all cases that allows defense attorneys to make the claim that race played a role in the arrest uh, during the trial, conviction, and or sentencing of their client. And so it's a groundbreaking piece of legislation in the sense that it actually allows us to use not just intentional racism, which we all know, especially those that are practicing the courts, is incredibly hard to prove. You can not just use intentional racism, but actually evidence that racism exists in some form or fashion in uh, the county uh, where you're prosecuting. So if you can show that black defendants get sentenced four times more uh, than white defendants for a similar type of crime, you can now make a claim that racism played a role and that a judge should be able to reconsider the sentencing. If you have a string of auto burglaries and you're finding that 90 95% of the, the accused are getting gang enhancements attached or Latino, then you as a defense attorney on your behalf, your client can say, hey, wait a second, race is playing a role in this enhancement being applied against my client. And then the judge has the ability to strike the enhancement. Now the person is still going to be held to account and go to trial uh, for the uh, auto burglary and then they get convicted or not. But the racial aspects of what is so insidious in our system um, gets challenged. And we had the opportunity to do that through the Racial Justice Act. It's so timely that you're bringing this legislation. Um, just this week, our local Santa Clara County District Attorney's Office published their 2020 update to their race and prosecutions report. And they highlight that um, our county's defendant population is not reflective of the community. Mm -hmm. In so far, and I'm quoting, insofar as there is a persistent overrepresentation of Black or African American and Hispanic or Latino people charged with crimes. And specifically, I mean, they call out specific crimes. African-Americans who make up 3% of our population um, are 23% of charged robberies. They're 16% of resisting arrest charges. They're 13% of residential burglaries and 24% of second degree burglaries. And I think these are just some of the statistics that you can pull out. Uh, Latino folks who make up 26% of our uh, county population or 72% of felony DUIs. 58% of residential burglaries, 58% of, mur of murder and attempted murder. That doesn't even get into the gang yes. enhancements and the, um, the different ways that the system can classify a certain set of behaviors, um, whether they consider it a low level offense or a really aggravated offense. So yeah. anyway, just to bring some statistics locally into how disproportionate our system can be. And it doesn't even get into sentencing. It's just talking about conviction right. rates. So looking at you know, the burglary rates, for example, well, who's getting sentenced to prison? Who's getting county jail, right? Who, who's being punished more for the same conduct? And, you know, and, and as someone with the spirit of a public defender still, I, I, I'm not trying to say that, well, white defendants should get more prison time. It's quite the opposite. Let's treat everybody with humanity. Let's actually do what public safety dictates, which is actually seeing what needs to be done in terms of holding someone to account, 
but also making sure they can acclimate back into society. It's not only smart considering the use of taxpayer money, but it's the right thing to do. And it, and it also makes us safer. So it's a win-win-win. We know that. The problem is that when you see these kinds of disparities that exist in Santa Clara County and every county in our state, we're clearly not doing the right thing. We're not seeking uh, the winning proposition here, uh, which, which is uh, to treat all parties involved with humanity the victim, the accused, um, the law enforcement. The, I mean, there's, there's really, it's all, it's not about, okay, well, this person's bad, this person's good. It's about how do we create a just society? And I think by rooting out racism, or at least, first of all, admitting it's there and then taking steps to root it out, we are on the path of, of creating a more humane system and one that respects all the parties involved far more than the current system. Ash, I, I appreciate all of that. I, I, you mentioned the public defender spirit. You were a public defender for 11 years, and you talked about the, the fact that this type of legislation has exist, or exists in other states. So I just want to take a moment to ask you about the genesis of how you came to uh, generate and author this particular uh, piece of legislation. Uh, was it, is it rooted in your practical experiences in the courtroom representing the people that we are honored to serve? And then uh, did you draw inspiration from particular pieces of legislation in other states? And are, and are you trying to essentially adopt uh, that legislation uh, here? So this was brought to me by a, a coalition of criminal justice, social justice, advocacy organizations that are loosely connected with the anti-death penalty coalition. Uh, they did come to me uh, knowing my values and my views on issues of criminal justice reform. And they also did come to me because of my experience in the courtroom. They knew that this was going to require a little bit more technical knowledge, a little bit more sophistication uh, than a bill that for example, simply got rid of an enhancement or the prison, I mean, those are much more straightforward. Uh, and so the, given the complexity of what was attempted, uh, they came to me and, and presented uh, the legislation. And I thought about it for a very long time before agreeing to it, not because I didn't agree with it, but because I wanted to make sure I was the right author for it. I wanted to make sure that I had the bandwidth to push it forward and that the timing was right. And I decided yes on all those things. I was very excited about this piece of legislation as it was proposed to me. It doesn't exist in the form we're presenting it anywhere else in the nation, although a couple states do have it just for death penalty cases. And so the idea that California could lead on this um, is also something that's very appealing. And we already have other states reaching out to my office and to our coalition, Texas, Nebraska, uh, they're already creating Racial Justice Act coalitions there uh, in preparation to bring it to their legislature, which is amazing. Uh, and so I brought this bill forward actually in the beginning of the year, pre-COVID. And so this was also pre the torture and murder of George Floyd. So it wasn't a reaction uh, to the movement in the streets. It was presented earlier. Uh, but because of COVID and the dramatic impact that COVID had on our legislative session, it got cut from being heard. I had over two dozen bills I had proposed in the beginning of the year that I, had begin, that I had begun working on with my staff. And over half of them were immediately dropped because of the issue of bandwidth, because we now were being sent home for weeks and weeks, uh, long recess. And we knew that when we got back to the Capitol, we had very limited time, literal physical time, given the fact that we didn't 
have open access to all the committee rooms that we would need to do all the hearings. So the bill didn't get heard in assembly uh, public safety committee. But then after uh, we, we, the murder of George Floyd and millions in the streets and a demand for racial justice and criminal justice reform more specifically, we brought it back and, we, and I got a bill on the Senate side. I inserted the language for the Racial Justice Act. And trust me, this has been a roller coaster. We had no idea we would get this bill to the governor's desk. We wanted to, but we knew it was a massive, massive uphill climb. And so many things just went our way and we fought really, really hard. I have incredible sponsors on the bill that worked incredibly hard. It actually passed on the last day we were in session in about five hours. It passed both the Senate and assembly floor. Um, because it was so late in the day, it didn't come back to assembly committee. It went straight to the floor and we were able to get it out of the legislature on the last day. And I think honestly, we kind of caught the DAs off guard because, uh, you know, I don't think they expected that it was going to move so quickly uh, down the stretch. What do you think the governor is going to do with it? <laughs> I, I hope he signs it. And we have a lot of people reaching out to him. Uh, I encourage anyone out there to reach out to him and to his office. Uh, this is important. This is meeting the moment, as he loves to say. I actually love that phrase uh, because it is about meeting the moment and the moment that we're in dictates that we do everything we can to root out systemic racism. It's not an easy bill in the sense that it is going to uh, be something new that attorneys and judges have to consider, but it's the right thing to do. Uh, and it's going to lead to cases of first impression. It's going to you know, allow our appellate courts to really frame it in the years ahead as defense attorneys and DAs appeal decisions, and that's how it's supposed to be, right? And, and so there are concerns about that from the judicial community, okay, well, how do we interpret this? And I, I trust the judges to be able to get it right. I trust that um, our defense attorneys will make the case and DAs will have to respond. A lot of data will be uh, made available and should be made available uh, if this gets signed into law to defense attorneys. Ultimately, the goal is not to have you know, a bunch of hearings in court where the defense is challenging and you know this goes on for years being challenged in court. Ultimately, the goal is to change behavior. Ultimately, the goal is to have DAs be more thoughtful and careful about how they charge their cases, judges more thoughtful and careful about how they sentence, law enforcement more thoughtful and careful on how they put into place their practices uh, you know, one of the examples you mentioned had to do with DUIs. Well, I think it's pretty clear that across the board, uh, DUI uh, is not committed by any one race more than the other. But if, the, if there, you have one race that's being arrested for that much, well, what are the practices we've been put in place that's causing that? And how do we rethink that? Are all the traffic stops in East San Jose, uh, you know, do they, are none of them in Los Gatos? Not saying that they should have them there or they should have them anywhere. My point is that these practices lead to that data and not the other way around. Yeah, that's incredible. It reminds me of that. There was uh, the San Jose police scandal um, or issue that was raised surrounding uh, drunken public arrests that were primarily being targeted upon Latinx community members in downtown San mm -hmm. Jose. So I think that that type of practice would be directly um, impacted by mm -hmm. this type of legislation. A couple things you've you've mentioned, Ash, that I want to uh, kind of pull apart a little bit. Sarah asked you about what you are, you're hoping of the governor, just kind of putting your devil's advocate hat on. 
why wouldn't the governor sign it? Like, what are some of the people saying or calling for on the other side of the aisle, uh, the proverbial aisle saying, hey, don't sign this. And then relatedly, you mentioned district attorneys being kind of caught by surprise. We heard that Santa Clara County District Attorney's Office sent one of their members to Sacramento to be a vocal opponent to this bill. So kind of a multifold question, just kind of asking you, why would someone oppose something called the California (laughs) Racial Justice Act? And what are they saying? Well, they don't do it very publicly. I'll tell you that. Uh, And uh, I I was actually caught off guard. I did not realize. I I knew that statewide, the California DA's Association was opposed. uh, And I knew that our DA, uh, Jeff Rosen, was opposed. I was actually caught off guard that during the Senate committee hearing, we, we had Brendan Woods, um, speak as one of my witnesses, a public defender from Alameda County. We had Amber Rose Howard with uh, Curb speak uh, on our behalf. Uh, everyone called in in support. And then all of a sudden they say, okay, well, now opposition has time to present witnesses. On behalf of opposition, we have Santa Clara County District Attorney Jeff Rosen. Uh, and speaking for District Attorney Rosen is Deputy District Attorney Jeff Rubin. I was surprised. I didn't know that that was going to happen. I, did, I didn't know that that's who was selected to represent the DAs in the state of California. And frankly, I was very disappointed. It's one thing to be opposed. It's another to take the charge in trying to defeat the Racial Justice Act. And some of the arguments that were made uh, by Mr. Rubin included the fact that, well, we already have the 14th Amendment. We already have the U.S. Constitution, California Constitution. Yeah, that's all true. We have all that. And where has that gotten us? With all those protections. Right. We are in the current state we're in where systemic racism runs rampant. So that argument is essentially that the status quo is working. We know the status quo isn't working. And so, you know, in any case, we were able to get it through committee uh, and then it was not getting heard uh, on the Senate floor. And we're like, okay, come on, let's get it heard. Uh, And by the way, it did make it through Senate appropriations. Disappointed that they got rid of all the retroactivity in it, but that does dramatically reduce the cost. And so, kind of have to move forward with the bill that we had. So can you just kind of clarify that? So, so there was a, a clause that would apply uh, retroactively to, to give people that were impacted by racially motivated prosecutions or racially motivated convictions or sentences, um, the opportunity to kind of have those things revisited that got, that got nixed, yeah. Um, essentially. Yeah. So what happened was before it got to Senate appropriations, it, we had retroactivity in the bill. We knew we had the curtail it somewhat. So we amended it on our own or offered to amend on our own to include retroactivity just for those that are currently incarcerated, either in jail or prison or anyone with the immigration hold. Senate appropriations went a little further and got rid of all retroactivity, uh, which is sad uh, you know, because obviously there's a lot of folks, especially on death row or you know, facing life without parole or, or, or currently serving life without parole or other very, very severe sentences that are now stuck there um, and, and we can't go back for them. And, and that's all you always want to, you know, especially when there's a situation where you're, you, you have something that's so just and righteous, you don't want to have people that are in jail or prison that you can't help with uh, that legislation. But we clearly amended it. And so it's only prospective. It's not retroactive, but reduced cost. Uh, and so we're waiting for it to go onto the Senate floor and the last couple of days of the session, it's, it hasn't been called up yet. On Sunday, 
Dr. Shirley Weber's bill, AB 37, that deals with jury selection is put up first because it's a tougher bill. There was more objection to that bill uh, because it's far more prescriptive in what judges have to do and what DAs can't ask and all that. So that doesn't get the votes. You need 21 votes in the Senate, it gets 18. So Monday comes around, I'm like, well, can we now have my bill presented? And we're talking to the coalition and you know, Dr. Weber is a dear friend and support her bill 100%. So I don't want to mess up what she has going on. So they present her bill again. And this is like, this is Monday afternoon, our last day of session, it gets 18 votes again. And so then we present our bill. Uh, Racial Justice Act gets presented, you know, sometime, I, I'm trying to remember around five o'clock or so. It passes with 26 votes. So overwhelmingly passes. And then I'm waiting for the committee assignment for it to get heard on the assembly side. And then find out later, oh no, we're just going to send it straight to the floor. Within minutes, I'm presenting it. And so this is I, I, probably 7.30, 8, 8, 8.30 in the evening or so. And I'm presenting it and it passes and I'm, I'm somewhat stunned but, um, because it was so much work. It was such a roller coaster of a bill and it's a groundbreaking piece of legislation. And yet the final day, it just seemed easier. And it was a lot of work, don't get me wrong, but it just seemed easier than I had imagined it was, it was going to be. And so I think that because of the way it went down the final day or two, that the DAs were somewhat caught off guard because they couldn't respond and lobby in the way that they ordinarily, ordinarily would. They're great at lobbying over a week or two if they have a few days to get their DAs to contact their legislators, but to lobby in the course of 24 hours, 18 hours, five hours, uh, that takes a lot of organization. And um, I was in the ear of all my colleagues talking up this bill. And so they were hearing from me and no one else. And so when it got to the vote, it worked out great. argument that these are problems but we should attack them some other way or they themselves identify as a very serious problem statistical disparities in charging and convictions mm -hmm. you know this bill would attack language that's racially charged or loaded um, racial bias in jury selection disparities in sentencing these are acknowledged problems i think on both sides so why the i mean i we're asking you to present the opposition's yeah. case but i guess i don't i don't get it well, the, and the opposition's case uh, has to do certainly with the cost, with time that will have to be put in from the DA's office and you know, some from the courts say the same thing. However, you know, once this becomes established law, as is always the case, you know, if you have an issue with the arrest and, and have racial disparities in terms of the charging, that's not something that's done in the middle of the trial. That's an eliminate. That's a pretrial motion, just like so many other pretrial motions we do. And it'll be done without taking up the time of a jury and taking up court time in that sense. And same thing with issues with conviction or sentencing. That's a post-trial motion and hearing. And so there's actually a very limited scope of what's heard during the course of a trial. And so that was part of the argument we made to kind of counter 
of their argument. Now, yeah, they're going to have to be able to provide data, of course, but we need that data anyway. And some of them, like right now, we see with the DA's office here, they're already pre presenting that data because they know people are demanding it. And I well, think that- but it would be nice to have a reason to, sorry, to, I hope I didn't yeah, step on you yeah. there, to have a reason to get it in the course of litigation, yes. because it can be hard to get the numbers that you want sliced in the way that you want them. There's so much more to know than what's yeah. dropped in these reports about charging and how things resolve and what happens in jury selection. It's just, um, it would be a huge help as an individual litigant to have a reason to get this information. No, absolutely. We don't currently have. We basically have to look into it and then try to find an audience for it. And there is none. Yeah. I mean, look, the DAs are going to oppose because they never want any um, discretion taken away from their decision making. They want to be the ones to solve this, the problems of society. So even if they pr present a report saying, yes, racial disparities are significant, um, let us fix it. And it doesn't make sense, obviously, from the outside looking in, like, wait a second, how are you going to be the ones to fix it when you've been part of the machinery that's created that problem? But that's not how they perceive it. They, they don't want to give up power, jurisdiction. They see themselves as the saviors. I mean, DAs you know, always see themselves as the ones with the white hats on, but in the reality, they're the ones that, that have been an instrumental part of creating uh, this condition that we're in of systemic racism rooted in our criminal justice system. Um, they were instrumental in making California the incarceration capital of the world. Unless they're willing to acknowledge that, I, I don't see them acknowledging the, the need for them to actually allow someone else make the determination as to whether they're being racist or not. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, Brian Stevenson, I heard, I've been, I've been echoing these comments that I heard from Brian Stevenson on a podcast recently where he essentially said that in order for there to be true true reform, meaningful reform, there it starts with truth telling. Mm -hmm. It starts with honesty. It starts with um, a real deep retrospection, mm -hmm. uh, especially from seats of power like the DA's office yeah. to, like you said, acknowledge their roles in perpetuating systemic racism. And only if there is that real um, honest Mm -hmm. reflection and contrition, can there be meaningful reform? And so I don't know that we can rely on the kind of the status quo mm -hmm. in terms of the old guard of the district attorney's office or the district attorney's association to be the vanguards of, of any reform. In yeah. fact, they are the pillars of, mm -hmm. of the systems of, of systemic racism that you're describing. No, that's um, true. And the, but the good news is that I think people are waking up to that. Uh, and not just the electorate, but the DAs are waking up to that as well, which is good, except that it can also be used to cover up for mistakes of the past. However, if we look right now with, you know, Chase Boudin in San Francisco, who wrote a letter of support for the Racial Justice Act, we have George Gascon, you know, who very well could be the next district attorney in Los Angeles, who wrote a letter of support. I and mean, that's pretty impressive where you have um, the largest county and one of the most significant counties in the state, having that kind of support from prosecutorial leadership. But I also want to mention Tori Verber Salazar, who's the district attorney in San Joaquin, who, ex who has expressed support of the policy. So we're not just talking about liberal San Francisco and LA here. Uh, we're talking about the San Joaquin County's district attorney, who's been incredibly courageous uh, in challenging some of the foundational institutional structural issues she's, she's seeing in uh, San Joaquin County with her sheriff and um, uh, law enforcement. So, you know, they look at her as an agitator when in actuality, she's doing the difficult work in one of the most difficult places in the state to challenge the status quo. 
Ash, you're, we've, we've already mentioned you're a former public defender. Sarah and I are public defenders. Uh, Sarah, you are, are you on the trial team right now? I am. Yeah, you're on the trial team. I'm on a trial uh, assignment as well. So let's talk kind of nuts and bolts. Like uh, we are practicing public defenders. The governor is going to sign this act, uh, knock on wood, and we're calling for him to do that. So what impact will this have kind of in a tangible way on our caseloads? Like what can we expect this to potentially look like um, as we advocate for the people that we that we serve. Well, one of the things that this bill doesn't do, it does not give the power to dismiss cases outright. And so I mentioned that because it probably won't have a demonstrable difference in terms of your workload, in terms of reducing workload. The area where it may increase workload is it's one more factor that you have to investigate, do research trying to potentially bring emotion on um, and but it's good because again it will allow you to have a m much better look and much better insight overall uh, to the conduct of the district attorney's office and the various law, law enforcement agencies uh, in the county and so what that will ultimately allow you to do is have deeper conversations with the district attorney's office deeper conversations with the board of supervisors deeper conversations with law enforcement and chiefs of police and the sheriff uh, as to what do you do with that information. We have a tool now that allows you to challenge how you're prosecuting, how you're arresting based upon race. So what's the next step as a community for us? Do you want us to keep challenging it and having enhancements overturned, having mistrials and having cases we tried? Or do you actually want to start working on the systemic issues that we need to be working on. So that's where I see hopefully a lot more work going into, which is really what society is demanding of all of us. They're asking our DAs, our law enforcement, our public defenders, our board of supervisors, our city halls to do more work in rooting out systemic racism. So yes, absolutely in the courtroom, um, you will have a tool that'll be incredibly valuable for you to actually dig deep on racism being used against your client, whether it's intentional or not. And then outside the courtroom, an equally valuable um, tool to actually use as leverage for change. Yeah, I appreciate that. I, I, I noticed in the fact sheet on the bill, you know, there being discussions about the various uh, places where we see racial bias exhibited. It, it can be in really subtle ways, like through expert witnesses through uh, law enforcement officers, as we've discussed during jury selection by jurors, but then also by seats of power like judges and DAs. And so mm -hmm. it, it, it seems to allow for us to kind of mine through our cases at every stage um, for uh, components mm -hmm. of racial discrimination yes. and then call it out in a, in a forum with a actual tool, this law uh, that gives us uh, some sort of remedy. But I love the framing, Ash. It's, it's actually cool to hear you describe that this, this bill, it has a tangible impact in terms of affecting how we do our work in the courthouses. But what you are envisioning or hoping for is a reimagination of all these systems. Like that is just really inspiring for me to hear. Like, because oftentimes, like you said, when we hear about pieces of legislation, we're just kind of picking at little components picking at the system but what what i hear you hoping for is that this bill forces positions of power and all all actors in the system 
uh, to a place that we haven't mm -hmm. seen before um, because it's never looked that way. So that, that's really uh, exciting. Absolutely. No, take a, a, a new generation of leadership in, in uh, all these different organizations in elected office. And we're seeing young people uh, more aware of disparities in our criminal justice system uh, than ever before. Uh, and so it's not just a matter of people are taking to the streets and, and marching to the millions uh, with Black Lives Matter. People are actually doing their homework and they're identifying areas where they can make an impact. You see it our, at our city council meetings, board of supervisors, uh, you have people showing up and asking really tough questions. Uh, that's forcing the elected officials to ask those same questions. Uh, in some cases, um, you know, they're, they're being dragged to do it. In other cases, they're doing it very happily, which is good, but they maybe didn't have the political space or leverage to ask those questions before. Does gang prosecution survive the California Racial Justice Act? Yeah, I think it would. But I think that the way it's used would be much more focused and targeted to what I think most people would think a gang enhancement or gang charges would be. Uh, I think that if people knew how gang enhancements were being used, they'd be appalled. And so I, I think it'll have a dramatically beneficial impact um, to so many communities that are being ravaged by gang enhancements just because of the neighborhoods that they live in. It takes away a real nefarious weapon uh, that law enforcement uses, that DAs use, uh, as you know, even to leverage guilty pleas uh, or to leverage uh, testimony against others or to really target neighborhoods uh, into complying with law enforcement because they know that law enforcement has that tool to use a gang label on them to punish them. And so I, I don't think it'll be the end of gang enhancements or using that gang label as a weapon. I do think it will require far more focus into gang activity that can be very well proven uh, and not just some kind of loose connection to someone in a gang or living in a neighborhood where there are gangs. Uh, and so you will see, I mean, I think that this is where we'll see the creative arguments that are gonna be made by uh, defense attorneys and DAs as, as to why um, the gang enhancement should be applied. And that's what this bill seeks to do. It, it wants that vigorous debate over it, not just a given, just because a police officer gets up there and testifies as a gang expert, that um, that's enough um, for a jury uh, to convict and to um, you know, find the enhancement to be true. Yeah, as what's well. so, so interesting about gang cases, especially as, as we've experienced them here in Santa Clara County, is that we, we as public defenders see the back end of gang police, of gang uh, policing and gang law enforcement, meaning we see the back end of it where the people we represent have been arrested and have been charged and are being prosecuted for gang enhancements. But we, what we don't often recognize or remember is that for every one of those arrests and for every one of those charging decisions involving a gang enhancement, there is a whole glacier of policing that lays beneath, you know, where there's a whole culture of gang policing that is, uh, like you said, that is unleashed upon uh, communities of color, uh, where communities of color are ravaged by a culture of uh, police tactics and police behaviors that then manifest or kind of sprout these gang prosecutions. And so it's a whole 
machine that operates together. It's, it's one like kind of living, thriving body mm-hmm. um, that from my perspective is fundamentally rooted in racial animus and racial stereotypes and is essentially solely dedicated to uh, criminalizing uh, communities of color in Santa Clara County and across our state. And so I'm excited to be able to then uh, take this act, dig into the numbers, and then start to bring these challenges to gang uh, prosecutions um, to attack that whole um, operation. And to, like you said, I do think there may be, there, there, there are places where gang allegations, gang enhancements might be appropriate because they do in fact target people that are with, violating the spirit of gang laws. But this, the uh, statutes have become uh, so abused yeah. and so uh, broadened that it essentially has become this dragnet for people of color in our communities and it needs to be um, harnessed or yeah. just ultimately eradicated because yeah. it's, 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 uh, it, is, it, it is a fundamental example of systemic racism from my perspective. And this is an example where you, you do what's politically viable in the moment. It would be politically difficult to just outright get rid of gang enhancements, but this is a way to at least deal with the most nefarious racist impacts of gang enhancements, at least give you, give, give you a shot to make the argument. And in many cases, I think uh, the argument will be successful. And so let's at least deal with the racist impact. But I think your underlying uh, belief is absolutely correct that just the gang enhancement itself is racist in itself. Uh, but I think that this legislation will help to show that. It'll, it'll help, especially with the data collection and with the, the rulings from the court, it'll help to build a case against gang enhancements and their efficacy. Yeah, it's so exciting. And just to um, illustrate and just expand on Sajid and Ash, what you were saying, before I came to this work, you know, I had no idea the uh, surveillance mechanisms unleashed on brown teenage boys in Santa Clara County. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you get a case with a gang allegation, then you get discovery basically chronicling every outfit they've worn um, and in whose company they are just on an innocent time hanging out with their friends, you know, wherever at 7-Eleven at school. Oh, they wore red shoes. Oh, they, you know, had this belt on. And, you know, sometimes you're, you've got a client who's in his thirties and he's answering for the clothes, the clothes Mm -hmm. is, uh, you know, somebody else who's charged in the case war, you know, 20 years ago. It's, um, I mean, it would be absurd if it wasn't so scary. And so um, I think we have a lot of hope pinned on legislation like this to get at some of the overreach of our gang laws. And perhaps that hope is, you know, this, it, one, you know, one law isn't gonna um, be able to get at all the issues. But some of the things that this bill does talk about, like language, you know, I'm curious what, you know, litigation of, you know, the word thug or the the, um, the really racially charged language that's used in our gang cases to mm-hmm. make people fearful of our clients as though they are not human. That's right. Well, yeah, uh, Jeff, Jeff Rosen in his uh, Bend the Arc uh, conference kept calling uh, people gangsters, yeah. um, you know, terms like yeah. that. Um, no, it's, yeah. and that's, that's part of it is that it's the dehumanization uh, of individuals, uh, usually based on race. And it's been reinforced 
through media, through movies, you name it, over so many years. And so it takes work to undo that. It takes work to break that system of stereotyping and bigotry down. But you have to start somewhere. And I think our court system is a critically important place to start because the consequences are so grave of that systemic racism. And so it does require everyone to put themselves in check and, and be more thoughtful about how they're talking about other human beings. It doesn't matter what they're accusing them of doing. Uh, and especially if they're using language, you know, kind of like a dog whistle, like Trump always does, to trigger something in them to have animosity towards that person. Uh, you know, that's, that's what we see so routinely in our criminal justice system. And the fact that prosecutors don't see it is part of the issue. I mentioned this during our Senate Public Safety Committee hearing. You know, when you talk about systemic racism, people get defensive because they think that you're calling them a racist. The reality is that even if you replaced every prosecutor, every police officer, every defense attorney, every judge with someone that didn't have a racist bone in their body, which doesn't really exist in this country because we all have our biases, but let's just say you did that, it would still be a racist system because it's systemic. It's about what's built into the system. It's not saying that you are a racist, you're a racist, but that defensiveness keeps us from creating solutions that work towards justice. And so you see that with the DAs as well. They're so in the middle of it that they can't pull back and see the system for what it is and help to heal it because they see themselves as being the target of justifiable criticisms of the system. Rather, rather than part of the solution, they're, they're, they become obstacles. Perfectly said. Uh, I couldn't have said it better, Ash. Um, we only we have a few more few more minutes. Um, we we've already talked about this bill being on the on the desk of Governor Newsom. Uh, we hope to get this pod out pretty soon. Um, and uh, I'm wondering uh, what your kind of call to action is for people that that hear this podcast. What, what are you what are you uh, suggesting or asking that they do to support this uh, groundbreaking well, legislation? I really ask them to contact the governor's office and uh, you know, call, email, social media. Hashtag it, AB2542. Confront, hashtag confront racism is another hashtag we're using. And if you follow my Twitter, you'll see I'm tweeting about it. I'm retweeting some of our sponsors on the bill that are tweeting a lot about it. So my, my Twitter is Ash underscore cholera, A-S-H underscore K-A-L-R-A. If you follow me there, then you can also see some of the things that I'm tweeting about it that are connected with our sponsors, putting out information, data, and ways to contact the governor, petitions and what have you. Uh, it's all out there right now as we're in this mad rush to really you know, push the governor to do the right thing. Right now we're in a very special time. Not an easy time, uh, but it is a special moment. And I think most people would acknowledge that. Uh, when you have presidential candidates talking about police accountability and Black Lives Matter, uh, when you have uh, you know, all these sports leagues that were condemning Black Lives Matter just a you know, two, three, four years ago are now hailing it. Uh, and millions of people in the street, including folks that I are pleasantly surprised to see out there marching in the streets. So we have to take advantage of this moment. The Racial Justice Act is one way of doing it, but there are a whole slew of other pieces of legislation. Uh, there's a lot happening at the local level, the police departments, city councils, at the federal level. But ultimately, we have to recognize that it's never about the moment. It is about the movement. And this is a movement that is going to require a lot of work over many years. 
We've gotten some good things done in Sacramento over the last couple of years, but even this year in the middle of this uprising, we could not get bills through the legislature. So the pressure is still there from corrections officers, police unions. And so we have to really commit to a multi-year effort to move our criminal justice system towards justice, towards compassionate justice, towards greater public safety in the true meaning of those words, not in a false sense of safety using fear and division, but a true sense of public safety using unity and love for everyone, including those that may make a mistake or may commit a crime or may go down the wrong path. We have to make sure we bring them back into our community and that's how we create true public safety. Awesome, Ash. Thanks, thanks so much for uh, leading uh, this cause and uh, leading this movement, uh, being at the front of the pack um, for all of us to follow suit. Um, I agree with you. This is a, as you as we've talked about. This is a, these are systems that are in place that have uh, centuries-old roots. Um, it's they're not going to be corrected in a in a few weeks or a few months. Um, but uh, and so it's going to be a long haul. It's going to be a, 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 a long fight, but it's a, a fight worth fighting for. I think I, you might have mentioned that earlier in a, yeah. in a previous conversation. The kind of the silver lining to it all is we're all in it together. Um, and I'm really uh, grateful for Sarah and you and all of us that are, are that are trying to fight this fight and make yeah. to reimagine and re- revolutionize what our what our communities can look like. Well, if anyone knows about fighting fights that are worth fighting for, it's public defenders, and, and so that's why. You know, I think that the newly energized community of public defenders I'm noticing around the state is beautiful to see because they recognize that to truly transform our criminal justice system, to help not just their clients, but clients that they may have in the future, that they have to step outside of their bubble and their comfort zone outside of the courtroom and really start speaking of their experiences because your experiences are so valuable to educate the general population the constituents that elect DAs and city council members and legislators and judges. Uh, and so it's your experiences through your eyes, your clients get empowered. Thank you so much, Ash. Sarah, any closing comments, closing thoughts? I just really appreciate this conversation and all the work that you guys are doing um, in your respective lanes. And thank you for having me. Yeah, thanks, Sarah. Thanks, thanks Ash. Uh, thanks, everybody, for listening. And uh, from everyone here at Eight or No Better, including uh, Avi, uh, thanks to thanks to you all. I'll catch you on the next episode. Thank thanks. you. Bye, everybody.